Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. I guess I have to become a baseball fan or I'll never know what anybody's talking about. This is Political Breakdown from KQED in San Francisco. I'm Scott Schaefer. As the death toll in the war between Israel and Hamas continues growing in the Middle East, a very different kind of toll is being felt at elite universities. After the presidents of Harvard, the University of Pennsylvania, and MIT all earned failing grades on their testimony before Congress about anti-Semitism on campus, Penn's president, Liz McGill, quickly resigned after giving evasive answers to questions like this from Republican Congress member Elise Stefanik. Ms. McGill, at Penn, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's rules or code of conduct? Yes or no? If the speech turns into conduct, it can be harassment, yes. I am asking, specifically calling for the genocide of Jews, does that constitute bullying or harassment? If it is directed and severe or pervasive, it is harassment. So the answer is yes. It is a context-dependent decision, Congresswoman. It's a context-dependent decision. That's your testimony today. Calling for the genocide of Jews is depending upon the context. That is not bullying or harassment. This is the easiest question to answer yes, Ms. McGill. And there's pressure on the other university presidents who testified to resign. You know, some see it as a simple question of making sure students feel safe. Others say, eh, not so fast. This is a complicated debate about free speech versus public safety calling for genocide of Jews and whether that's a violation of a campus code of conduct, that's the issue that got these university presidents in trouble. But is chanting from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, hate speech? What if Jews hear that as essentially an echo of the Holocaust or calling for the annihilation of Israel? What are all the lessons from that? In just a bit, I'll be joined by Los Angeles Times columnist Robin Abkarian. But let's start up in Sacramento, where this issue is also playing out at the state capitol and beyond. Samia Kamal is with us. She covers the state capitol and California politics for Cal Matters. Hello there. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Well, I want to get to that topic in a minute of Israel and Hamas. But uh, let's begin with other problems uh, up in Sacramento, talking about the budget deficit. The Legislative Analyst Office uh, reports a budget shortfall or a budget problem of $68 billion uh, that the legislature and the governor are going to have to deal with come January or January through May, I should say. Or, and so put that in context for us. That's, that's a big number, but it's hard to get your head around that sometimes. 
Yeah, it is a big number. Um, it is a the projected deficit would be a record for California, but um, that's partly because the budget has also grown so much in recent years. Um, so the state has closed similar or worse spending gaps by percentage in the past. Um, so some budget officials have called it a serious problem, but not quite a crisis yet. Um, the state has also, you know, made several efforts over the past few years to um, build up its reserves. And we heard from the governor, you know, this past session and the session before that he would use his veto power to make sure that um, bills that were proposed by the legislature um, took, you know, this expected uh, deficit into um, consideration because, you know, coming out of the pandemic, we did have a surplus of, you know, um, uh, federal money. We had, um, you know, a healthy stock market, but we, um, the state did expect that that would change. Um, so I think what we're hearing now is getting getting the number on it, $68 billion. Um, so it makes it very real. And so I think, you know, we're going to see how how that plays out with the budget coming out in January, the governor's budget proposal, as well as how that shapes, you know, the decisions that the legislature makes and which bills and what, you know, how ambitious its agenda it's going to be this coming year. Yeah. And it seems like there was a weird wrinkle uh, this past year, which is unusual. You know, usually the revenues for the current fiscal year come in by the time they do the budget. Um, but this fiscal year, they were $26 billion below expectations. And usually they know that by April 15th, which is the IRS deadline. But this year, because of COVID and disasters, it all got pushed back to October. Does that, um, you know, can you say, describe how that kind of messed with their, their arithmetic up there? Yeah, um, you know, I, I think there was there were multiple delay or extensions of the deadline. And so the picture was very murky um, throughout the year. And, you know, that, that makes, uh, I think, this this final number or not final number, but this number that we have today, um, kind of maybe some some sticker shock as, you know, we we knew there was going to be some kind of deficit, but now we're seeing exactly just how much that is. Um, so not having a clear idea early in the year definitely, you know, puts us right up up um, against the the budget deadlines, the start of the legislative year. Whereas possibly, if we had known a little sooner, maybe there would be um, some different planning. Um, but you know, I think one of the big questions is: Are we going to have to? Is the state going to have to dip into its reserves? And what other you know budget trims are we going to see? Yeah, exactly. Well, let's move to the, the the war in Gaza. It has been dividing Democrats. We saw that a few weeks ago up in Sacramento at the state party convention. Um, and now Politico is reporting that Capitol staffers are circulating a petition calling for a ceasefire. Tell us what you know about that and what's driving it. Yeah, um, you know, I, uh, the petition um, has been going around for at least a week. And I know the political reported that there were at least 100 people who had signed the uh, petition in the first 24 hours. Um, so one of the things that they wrote was that for weeks, you know, staff, um, and I quote, staff have struggled in the face of ongoing war crimes, which many experts believe amount to genocide with no institutional support, no organized conversations, and no attempt to build a shared understanding about the war and California's position on it. So that's what staffers wrote into the petition. And, um, you know, I think that reflects kind of what we've seen as there hasn't been, um, you know, a uh, a singular response. It's kind of been, you know, um, we've seen 
delegates and some lawmakers sign on to a letter calling for um, limiting the deaths of civilians and uh, just very sort of disjointed responses. And I think um, a lot of these staffers are likely the ones fielding, you know, calls from constituents and letters. And, you know, they're seeing the protests outside of um, offices. And this is on the state level, this is on congressional level. Um, so, you know, I think um, that's probably what's fueling, you know, a call to actually have an sort of a, an organized um, way of, of dealing with this and, you know, maybe a more unified response that um, seems to better reflect what, what constituents are asking for. Yeah. Does it seem, do you have any sense at all, is it being driven equally, like in a bipartisan way? I mean, is it staffers who work for Republican members and Democrats, or is it really to, you really don't know exactly who has signed it, I guess? Yeah, at this point, we don't know who has signed it. Um but um, I, I think, you know, it's the letter itself does ask for um, just kind of addressing the concerns that are coming from from different communities, from the Jewish community and from Arab communities. Um, you know, there there is a continued concern about, you know, the hostages that are still being held and, you know, as well as the, the civilian deaths in Gaza. And so I think this is kind of reflective of what we're seeing um, the state of California grappling with is how do you how do you balance these community needs and do they have to be at odds or is there a way to, um, you know, uh, sort of represent Hold um, both thoughts at one time, right, basically. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. Do you have any sense, uh, finally, what impact something like this would have on the legislature? Um, you know, in in my experience with the Capitol, um, I haven't seen a ton of open letters like this from staff. But one that I think you know it was notable was the um, the we said enough letter a few years back, where um, you know staffers had spoken out about um, sexual harassment. By, yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Did that, um, did that have any impact? Do you think? Um, you know, we saw the, the workplace conduct unit created. Um, I will also continue to see those issues that were raised in the letter um, brought up when it comes to bills like the legislative staff union effort um, and other policies that um, kind of govern how legislative staff operate. So I do think it had an impact. So letters like this, I think, can have some some lasting impact. Yeah. Well, it'll undoubtedly continue playing out up there. All right. Samia Kamal from CalMatters. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, I'll be joined by LA Times columnist Robin Abkarian. We'll be talking about how the Israel-Hamas war is playing out on college campuses and, well, in many other places, too. You're listening to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. We'll be right back. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. 
And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. We're diving into how Israel's war against Hamas in Gaza is roiling campuses across the country and a debate about freedom of speech versus protecting students from physical harm, intimidation and harassment. Los Angeles Times columnist Robin Abkarian has written about how the conflict is playing out in Hollywood and other places where people have been fired for saying or tweeting how they feel about the war. And she joins us now. Robin, welcome to Political Breakdown. Happy to be here, Scott. Well, first of all, I mean, one of the things you've written about is that potentially in this whole mess, there is a price to pay for speaking out on the war. Um, Tell us, you know, how you're seeing that play out from where you sit down in Los Angeles and Venice more specifically. Yeah, well, I mean, we've seen it everywhere. This has been going on, you know, since the October 7th invasion by Hamas and sort of the resulting tangle of emotions over, you know, how awful that attack was, Israel's retribution, the ongoing bombing, airstrikes in Gaza and the resultant uh, loss of human life. And there, it seems like there's just a tendency among people who are, you know, holding forth on social media to take one side or the other. And there's no room for subtlety or really uh, historical perspective when you're dealing with social media. So people make these statements, you know, they ends up being a big backlash. They get fired, they get punished, uh, then they apologize. And the most recent place we've seen that played out, of course, is in Congress with um, the three presidents of Harvard, Penn, and MIT, who really, really, really stuck their feet in their mouth uh, the other day by refusing to condemn calls for genocide on their campuses as bullying or hostile behavior. I mean, it was kind of incredible, actually. Yeah, and one of them, of course, uh, Liz McGill from Penn has stepped down and there's pressure on the other two. Although it looks like those universities, MIT and Harvard, are sort of standing by their presidents. But, you know, I'm wondering if we'll talk, I want to get more into what, what happened there, but I'm wondering if you think that the reaction to what they said had anything at all to do with the fact that all three were women. You know, I thought about that and I thought, would we, would the reactions be so strongly if it were men making these statements? And you know what? To be honest, I don't. I think the statements were seen as such an egregious sort of legalistic parsing as opposed to a humane, honest way of responding to questions about calls for genocide that I think it probably would have happened whether the presidents were male or female. I mean, small victory, the presidents were female. That was great. <laughs> Looks like some of them are going to lose their jobs. But, you know, now that that's true equality. Yeah. What is your sense of where the pressure 
to get them to resign is coming from? Is it from donors? Is it from the board? Is it from faculty? Is it from students or all of the above? Do you know, I think it's probably coming from boards and donors because faculty, of course, you know, there's a difference between our absolute right to free speech and academic freedom and what is considered, you know, okay in academia. And I think any, you know, professors probably see it as chilling uh, that that these presidents' uh, tenures are in danger over their statement. So I think there's probably less pressure from faculty, and generally speaking, of course, not across the board. But the pressure is coming from donors, and I mean big, high, high dollar donors who are threatening to cancel their checks to these institutions because they're so offended by what the presidents have said. And I would just like to say, you know, in all this. I was very curious about what, for example, Harvard's non-discrimination and anti-bullying policy actually is. Mm. So I went online, and it says, if I could just read it, discrimination, bullying, hostile and abusive behavior, and power-based harassment directly threaten community members' ability to freely exchange ideas and pursue their educational and professional goals. So it also says that discriminatory harassment may be considered to violate Harvard University policy when it is so severe, pervasive, and objectively offensive that it creates a work, educational, or living environment that a reasonable person would consider intimidating, hostile, or abusive. How on earth does calling for the genocide of Jews protected under that policy? I mean, I think... the person would consider yeah, that. Well, absolutely. And, I, you know, there was that article in the Times uh, over the weekend that, uh, you know, one law firm prepared all of yeah. those presidents for, for their testimony. And they did give lawyerly answers. But you're right. I mean, as just as a human being, uh, that would have seemed to have been a really easy question to answer with a, yeah, of course, it's it does yeah. violate the policy. And uh, But, you know, now they find themselves in the mess that they're in. Do you, do you have any discomfort? knowing that the that the pressure is coming from big donors, wealthy people? I mean, sure. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's always <laughs> the case, though, isn't it, that the people who write the checks seem to get, uh, you know, have the most important vote on these issues. Um, w- would it be n- nice if, if, the, uh, if the institutions in question would stand up and say, you know, we're not bowing to this kind of pressure? But these are the institutions, the donors, the boards of directors, the graduates, the trustees, this is, these are the people who are the institutions. So, you know, it doesn't surprise me, I guess, is what I would say. Um, And emotions are running so hot on this issue that I just think, you know, we probably haven't come to the end of seeing who else is going to get fired over this stuff. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I know that, of course, I know you're not a constitutional lawyer, neither am I, but the, you know, freedom of speech, the First Amendment applies differently to a public university than it does to private institutions. And I'm just wondering, you know, what are you hearing? What are you thinking about, you know, how this is playing out at, say, the University of California and the campuses here? Well, you know, I don't have any specific information about that. However, I will say this. In 2017, I remember coming to the campus at Cal and also at UC Davis when that right-wing provocateur Milo Yiannopoulos was mm-hmm. coming to speak. Yep. Yep. And there were ginormous student demonstrations against him because he embodied hate speech and was perceived as anti-gay. And the idea that you needed to, you know, shut down speech was so interesting and so hot a topic at that time. 
But now we it's like a different aspect of speech. It's like talking about Israel and the Palestinians and what speech is acceptable on campus. And either, I mean, I consider myself to be a free speech absolutist in so many cases. But when you have people calling for genocide, for death, you know, as an Armenian American, I'm sensitive mm, to that. Yeah, exactly. I don't really think it has any place on campuses, which yeah. are, you know, there's there's sort of a they they have a unique place in culture. There's supposed to be a place where we learn to think critically and we have the free exchange of ideas, but there's also supposed to be somewhat of a sense of protection of young people, um, not to the point of coddling and giving everybody a safe space and hoping they don't get triggered because getting triggered is really part of growing up. But I do think just this kind of free-for-all calling for the death of uh, a whole group of people based on their religion uh, is really offensive and inappropriate. And, well, yeah, well, and, and you know, of well, course, the, the right has always felt that these elitist universities have a double standard for, you know, conservative speech, like, you know, you mentioned uh, Milo uh, yeah. and, and others like him who have, you know, faced a lot of protests, in some cases cancellation from speaking engagements. So this really does, I mean, with that testimony from those three college presidents, mm -hmm. it really plays right into that, doesn't it? That's because there is a double standard. I'm sorry, but I mean, you're seeing it in action. Um, campuses, as we know, have have become, you know, I'm not going to use the word woke because I find it to be quite a cliche, but I think there's certainly a pervasive, you know, sense of progress, pro you know, progressivism on college campuses, most of which are very left leaning. And now I think you're seeing where the rubber hits the road when it comes to issues of free speech and uh, things that people are allowed to say or should be allowed to say. And there, I think there is a double standard. Yeah. Well, we saw in Hollywood, uh, Susan Sarandon got in a lot of trouble for speaking out at a pro-Palestinian rally, uh, yeah. you know, saying that about anti-Semitism, the Jews in the U.S. who are worried about their security, quote, are getting a taste of what it feels like to be a Muslim in this country. And she later <coughs> issued an apology. Um, I mean, how, how ahistorical do you have to be to think that Jews have not experienced this kind of violence and anti-Semitism over the decades and indeed the centuries. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing, though, is it, uh, you know, as I think you wrote in your column a few weeks ago, you can hold two thoughts at once. You can be both, you know, obviously condemn Hamas for what it did. It's unforgivable, um, heinous, horrible. But at the same time, be concerned about, you know, what impact the war is having on Palestinian civilians who are, you know, in, in most cases innocent and should, you know, should not have to face that. So it's, but but I, we're just in a moment, it seems, where that kind of nuance is completely lost. Well, and the other thing is it's so much more complex than this side versus that side. I mean, if you've been reading some of the great reporting that the New York Times has been doing about how uh, the government of Benjamin Netanyahu is essentially allowed Qatar to fund Hamas because keeping Hamas busy and governing instead of making plans for terrorist attacks seemed to be uh, the better political decision for Netanyahu. I mean, there's a lot of really, I guess, for lack of a better word, funky stuff that's gone on in the Israeli right-wing government that exists today. And, and, you know, I think, you know, many quarters are rightfully blaming it for letting its guard down and allowing this attack to go forth. Yeah, well, that article you referred to, I think um, the Israeli government was asked by, by Qatar, do you mm -hmm. want these payments to Hamas to continue? 
And this was years ago. And they yep. said, uh, yeah, yeah, we do. Because yeah. <laughs> they were yeah. trying to buy quiet, they thought, right. and also exactly. provide a balance to the Palestinian Authority, which, you know, is, yeah. is just kind of crazy. Yeah. So it was easier for Israel to kind of keep those two factions um, at, at each other's throats than to move forward with any kind of solution, two-state solution, and so on. Another, and very much like what happened before 9-11 in this country, there were Israeli professionals who thought Hamas was planning exactly the kind of attack that they uh, did plan, that they executed, and brought it to the government's attention. And the government, like the United States government before 9-11, was complacent yeah. and didn't think it could ever happen there. Yeah, well, I, I guess in some ways you could... That's a little more easy to understand because, yeah. you know, we haven't been attacked regularly, but in you know, in Israel, yeah. which is always on guard or should be, yeah. um, you know, it, it seems like you should not, uh, as Netanyahu did, ignore the advice uh, or the warnings from your military leaders. But that's what right. he did. Um, I want to ask you another Hollywood question. Uh, the Golden Globe Award nominations were announced today. It's Oscar season before too long. Is this whole issue of, you know, protests over the war, is that kind of a nightmare for Hollywood in that regard? You know, it's interesting. I think it certainly can be. I mean, for people like Susan Sarandon, who found out the hard way that maybe she should be a little more thoughtful before she opens her mouth in public. Um, but what you see is is generally the annual sort of debate over whether politics belongs at the Oscars or the Golden Globes or the Emmy or whatever, you know, do yeah. does do politics and entertainment mix? Well, of course they mix, you know, and it's you never know if, if somebody's going to make a stand, take a stand, make a statement. Last year, of course, uh, the uh, the documentary that won was about Navalny, who's a prisoner of Putin in Russia, and so there was, of course, an inevitable politics reared its head at the Oscars. Uh, I would assume we will be seeing people making statements this time around as well. It's just you know the world feels like it's on fire, and you know as much an escape that Hollywood provides, it's still part of the real world. What do you think, last question, what do you think, uh, you know, is the takeaway from all this? And of course, we're not done with it. It's still very much an yeah. issue that is unfolding. But uh, what, what what is the takeaway? Stay off of Twitter, X, if you prefer. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. I somehow, Elon Musk managed to take my account away from me for reasons that remain a mystery to me. I think my account got hacked and I could never get it back. So <laughs> I'm not on Twitter as much, but I do also see the benefit of not being on Twitter as much because social media, it's just, it's not a place for subtle, nuanced discussions and people who you know decide that the world absolutely needs to know what they feel about any given hot topic are often going to learn the hard way that the world you know that they should have kept their sentiments to themselves yeah no the, the, the there's so much risk and downside to even being yeah. on those platforms uh, if they all went away tomorrow i would not be sad at all all right yeah. robin f carrion los angeles times columnist thank you so much for joining us today Thank you very much, Scott. And that's a wrap for Monday, December 11th. Political Breakdown is a production of KQED. Our engineer is Seal Muller. Our producer is Izzy Bloom. I'm Scott Schaefer. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. 
the land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.